You're listening to, at any rate, J.P. Morgan's Global Research Podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Teresa Ho, head of U.S. Short Duration Strategy. Today, I want to dig into one of my favorite topics, Fed balance sheet normalization, no more informally SQT. Now, this is something that has been running in the background for over 20 months, and so far, it has been relatively uneventful. The balance sheet has declined by about $1.4 trillion from its peak, returning to its size last seen in the spring of 2021, though still remains about $3.5 trillion larger than where it was prior to the onset of the pandemic three years ago. Earlier this year, we learned from the December Fed minutes and certain Fed officials that it might be time to start discussing about slowing the pace of QT. Following a similar timeline as the one we saw in 2019 when the Fed last tapered, we made the case that the Fed will formally announce dialing back QT in March, followed by implementation in April. And the setup for that will be in the January FOMC meeting minutes, where we would see a fuller discussion of potential balance sheet plans. This, of course, did not turn out to be the case. The minutes released last week only had a brief discussion on QT. And on top of that, the language around balance sheet normalization was fairly lax, noting that it will be appropriate to begin in-depth discussions of balance sheet issues at the next meeting to guide to an eventual decision to slow the pace of runoff. Emphasis on the words begin and eventual as a way to describe the timing of QT taper. So certainly it seems like there's no urgency to start the QT process anytime soon, even if it's prudent on the Fed to begin discussions about its eventuality. In fact, our U.S. economist, Mike Faroli, has now pushed back the timing of taper by three months, so announcing in June and implementing in July. Given this backdrop, I thought it would be most useful to explore what a later QT taper would mean for the markets. And to help me unpack this, I'm joined by Ipek Ozo, Senior U.S. Interest Rate Derivative Strategist. Thanks for joining me, Ipek. So first things first, why do you think the Fed is in no hurry to taper anytime soon? Well, always happy to join, Teresa. And well, a couple of things, but maybe we can start with SOFR. So as investors may recall, SOFR experienced modest upward pressure over November and December month ends, but this actually did not resurface at the end of January. As a matter of fact, SOFR has actually trended lower this month as the increased specialness in front-end treasuries likely to drag the benchmark rate lower, similar to what we've seen back in 2022. So any concerns around SOFR trending upwards seem to be kind of moderating. And there is also the fact that there is plenty of liquidity in the marketplace. We are currently at near 500 billion of overnight RRP and three and a half trillion of reserves. And while it is true that RRP balances declined rapidly for the latter half of last year, they are likely to remain elevated in the near term, given negative table issuance in the coming weeks. And this is actually something you've written about, Teresa. That's right. Um, RRP balances tend to have a pretty tight inverse correlation to T-bill outstandings, given the fact that money funds view these two asset classes as closed substitutes. Um, we saw it early last year in the run-up to the debt ceiling in May, when RRP balances got as high as $2.3 trillion as Treasury was paying down T-bills. And then a year later, RRP balance is now hovering around $500 billion as Treasury has issued over $2 trillion in T-bills. So not quite a one-for-one one beta, but it's pretty close. And then I guess 
this leads me to my next question for you, Epac. You and your team have done some really fantastic work on forecasting how the Fed's balance sheet will evolve this year. Given the relationship between overnight RRP and T-bills, um, you've made some changes here. Can you talk to us about that? And then more broadly, what does this tell us about the path of QT from here on out? Sure, Teresa. But before I talk about that, maybe let me take a step back and start with how we think about the Fed's balance sheet. So we assume a rather simplified balance sheet and look at the three liabilities that would move the most with QT. So these are reserves, RRP, and TGA. In a QT world, as the Fed balance sheet declines, we assume that these three liability side items will absorb the declines in the asset side. Now, the decline in the asset side is mostly predictable. Liability side, slightly less so. On the liability side, for example, TGA, we expect TGA balances to be less volatile in 2024, but there is, of course, still some seasonality around April. But the two big items are RRP and reserves. Now, looking ahead, as you said, there was a significant relationship between T-bill issuance and a decline in RRP balances. Of course, we also think part of this was because there's been a strong preference for reserves from banks post-SVB, and the heavy T-bill supply provided an easy alternative for RRP balances and allowed reserves to be relatively steady. But this is poised to change in, in the near term. So we're entering a period where historically net T-bill supply is negative, and also our expectation for T-bill issuance for the remainder of the year is much lower than what we saw last year. So therefore, when we look at the Fed balance sheet, we now look for partial sensitivity of reserves with respect to the Fed balance sheet size to climb back towards 75% in second quarter, and then normalize back to 50%, reflecting the fact that we now expect RRP to be more stable in the near term. All in all, this implies that QT can continue throughout 2024, with overnight RRP ending the year around 300 billion and reserves ending the year around three trillion. Got it. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you are saying is that QT will run through this year and stop when overnight RRP reaches $300 billion. So $300 billion is kind of the threshold we believe will affect smooth functioning in the money markets, which we know is important to the Fed. And this kind of makes sense because if we think about those sudden drain and reserve episodes, such as corporate tax days or large treasury settlement days, they usually amount to somewhere between 100 to 200 billion dollars. So having a slight buffer above that in overnight RRP, which effectively is a pool of liquidity on the sidelines that's ready to be deployed into the repo markets, having that buffer helps minimize those potential dislocations when there is a sudden rapid drain in reserves. To that end, EPEC, you talk about reserves ending the year at around $3 trillion, which seems, in my mind, reasonable. We are at $3.5 trillion currently. Do you see any risk to QT along the way from 3 dollars to $3 trillion? Well, I think we're going to have to watch for April tax day. Given tight labor markets and strong asset performance in 2023, there could be another large TGA surge similar to what we saw in 2022. This might mean a larger drain in reserves during this period. We actually tried to reflect some of these dynamics in our forecast when we looked at the Fed balance sheet forecast. And we think this decline, if it were to materialize, will likely be isolated to the week of April 15th on tax day. Got it. So definitely something to watch out for as we approach April tax day. 
certainly the availability of the standing repo facility and the positive overnight RRP balance should help mitigate any fallout, but it bears watching just how close we are getting to the lowest comfortable level of reserves. So taking this later timeline, let's talk about market implications. From a SOFR perspective, I don't think it has any significant implications. Clearly, the Fed will be draining more liquidity relative to our original expectations, but we are also expecting T-bill issuance to turn negative in late March, early April, which all things equal bias SOFR lower. But what about from a swaps perspective? What does that mean for swap spreads? So this has implication for um, front-end swap spreads and intermediate matured swap spreads. So maybe starting with the intermediate matured swap spreads, we've had a widening bias on belly spreads for a while now. And part of the reasoning was the accelerated QT taper timeline. So now with the onset of taper now likely pushed back by three months and QT appearing to continue all year, this important factor is now a headwind relative to the status quo. And this coupled with the fact that now belly spreads are pretty close to fair value, we just turn neutral on belly spreads. And in terms of front-end spreads, one of the reasons that we had a narrowing bias was that our expectation that RRP balances could decline sharply going forward, but keeping up with the recent trend. But with now, we think RRP is projected to remain more stable, and with t issues poised to turn negative in the second quarter, front-end spreads could remain well-supported. So we also turn neutral on two-year spreads this week as well. Got it. So market implications here is that you are neutral on both two-year swap spreads as well as five-year swap spreads. Thank you, EPAC. And with that, let me end it here. Institutional investors can read more about these topics on JP Morgan Markets or reach out directly with questions. We look forward to continuing the discussion next week on at any rate. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2024, JP Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 26, 2024.